Uh, well, hey, everybody. It's good to see you guys. Uh, as you know, I always love preaching here uh, at Living Word, and today is no different. But here is what is different today. We're going to go through almost 70 verses together today. Um, so I'm going to dispense with any sort of lengthy introduction uh, other than to say this. One of the reasons that I love coming to church during Advent season is because we hear these great sermons on things like hope and love and joy, and the team here always does such a good job of there's challenge in them, but at the same time, they just feel like a, like a nice, warm hug reminding us of Jesus, and I want you to know that that is not what you're going to experience today. Uh, today's sermon has turned out to be much more like a really, really aggressive bear hug uh, about peace. Uh, so here we go, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. Uh, we will be reading all of Isaiah 40, 41, and part of 42 today. Um, buckle up, we got this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it, together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The book of the prophet Isaiah is traditionally divided into two parts. The first part is chapters 1 through 39, and this details the warnings of Isaiah to the people of Israel to turn back to God, to turn away from their idols, to incline their hearts back toward God, or to understand that destruction of their nation, of them as a people, is coming. Isaiah chapter 40, which I just read from, begins what is known as Deutero-Isaiah or 2nd Isaiah. And this is, these are the prophecies of Isaiah that come to the Israelites after they go into exile. After their sin continues time and again, they choose not God, and God allows Babylon to conquer them and carry them into exile. Today, I have the honor of preaching the Advent Sermon on Peace. And to do that, I want to take you to a place in Scripture where God speaks to his people at a time when they are not at peace. And comfort is what God calls for. He is coming and his glory will be revealed is what he says. And you can rest assured that comfort and glory and peace, that is where we're going today. Peace is what we're going to find. This is Advent, so you know that's coming through the incarnation of Jesus, God's servant. But that's going to happen 55 verses from now. <laughs> See, Advent is a season in which we prepare our hearts to celebrate the coming of Jesus. And so today... We're going to go through the words that God used to prepare his people while they are in exile before he tells them about Jesus. And then we're going to look at the very first thing God tells his people about Jesus during their exile. And it is my fervent hope that through this process, we will learn to see ourselves more clearly because God has some things to say and they're less than flattering. 
We learn to see ourselves more clearly. We learn to see God more completely so that we can enjoy the peace of Jesus more fully. So without any further ado, let's see what God has to say to prepare his people. And Isaiah continues with verses 6 through 8. A voice says, cry out. And I said, well, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. So to begin his words of preparation for us, God tells us about ourselves. We are like grass here today and withered tomorrow. Our faithfulness to God is like a beautiful flower, nice and full today and fallen tomorrow. And God is present with his people through all the withering and falling, but the only thing that endures, the only thing that remains consistent is the word of God. What God says neither withers nor falls. And so we start immediately with this juxtaposition between God and his withering, unfaithful people and his enduring word. So with that in mind, we come to verses nine through 11, and they say this, you who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout, lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. We have to stop here because of verse 11. And I want you to imagine around a random shouting man up on a mountain, and he starts by announcing the presence of God. And then he uses words like sovereign, and power, and might. He talks about things like reward and recompense. And I want you to ask yourself, what kind of words do you expect next? Because when I think about this, the words that I expect to come after this are words like judgment, retribution, penalty. But as we read about our God, we see that what shouting man says is he says words like tend and gather carry and gentle and frankly i like those better and so we get a picture of god leading and protecting and loving his sheep so here's the juxtaposition that we have now we have you and me who are like withering grass and we have faith like a falling flower this is not a flattering picture i told you and we don't look great here but then we have god whose word has endured through time arriving to his people in an exile they deserved with might and power, but like a loving shepherd with reward and recompense for the flock he carries close to his heart. He looks great. Let's learn more about him. Verses 12 through 20. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on a scale and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom 
the Spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely, notice the confidence of this word. Surely, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. So after revealing the loving shepherd nature of our God, after expanding on the vastness of God, Isaiah now points to the absurdity of idolatry. On one hand, you have God who stands outside of creation. He molds it like Plato. You have God whose wisdom and knowledge spun all of creation into being. You have God who is so vast that the riches of entire nations, the depths of entire bodies of water, the broadness of continents of land, these things are literally worthless and less than nothing before him. You have this massive, powerful, wise, all-knowing God coming freely to his people like a loving shepherd. And what do his people do? They take a small piece of the drop in a bucket that we call creation, a piece they can't even afford to buy themselves. They mold it with their withering hands, nail it in place, and worship it. This is one of the main reasons Israel was carried into exile. Please note the absurdity of this. Also note that this is not an us and them moment. The words of Isaiah are for you and me. Remember that idols back in this time, they represented ideas as much as they did beings. You had the fertility goddess. You had the god of agriculture, the goddess of love, the god of thunder. And we have the same thing today. We are not different. We have the god of money. We have the god of family. We have the god of security. We also have the god of love, the god of politics. Maybe the most modern one we have, the god of our personal brand. And many others. We are just as absurd. And we shape these idols with our own withering hands, our broken cultures, our limited minds. We cannot afford what any of these will cost us, but sometimes alone and sometimes together we forge them anyway. And we nail them down and we stand before them hoping that although they are conceived and constructed in frailty, we hope that they won't fall and expose that our faith in them is just as dead as they are. An absurd choice held up by hope in what God considers nothing. Verse 21, do you not know? Have you not heard? Have you not been told from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth 
And its people are like grasshoppers. Isn't it good to be known by your God? Its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. He spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them. And they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes, look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Don't miss this. The Lord is the everlasting God. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So just to keep the juxtaposition going, we are withering, falling, idolatrous grasshoppers before God. Okay? It's just the Bible, okay? God is mighty, powerful, outside and above creation, beyond our understanding, without peer in the universe, and this God comes to us like a loving shepherd. A shepherd who wants to carry us close to his heart, to give us strength in our weariness, to give us power in our weakness. Israel's people, or Israel's God, his people rejected him. His people chose exile. We still do the same. But even still, even with these choices, God in his vastness, with his love, comes to his people on his terms. And instead of the judgment they deserve, he invites them to once again hope in him and have their strength renewed. His faithfulness is amazing. Friends, I told you I was going to preach about peace. I haven't said the word, the word peace a single time since I've said that, but I haven't taught you about anything else. As we consider the idea of peace today, I hope you're picking up on who can bring some right. to your life. Right. The scripture continues, and God has some things to say. He's more. He's got some things to make clear to the world and some things to say to his people. It begins like this in Isaiah 41, verses 1 through 4. And this is God speaking. Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to wind-blown chaff with his bow, he pursues them and moves on unscathed by a path his feet have not traveled before. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. So, so what's going on here? 
God calls all the people to stand before him, the islands, the nations, everyone. He's not doing anything in the dark. He's not leaving anyone out. And what he does, he calls them all together to this place of judgment, the place where legal decisions were made. And he points at the situation of the world in which the nation of Babylon, which came out of the east, by the way, that's the reference in the scripture, is the undisputed power at this time. The king of Babylon is the undisputed earthly sovereign, and he just simply asks everybody, he's like, Who's di who did this? Who made the world like this? And God says, I did. I raised Babylon to take over all the nations surrounding Israel. I handed all of those nations and all of those kings and all of those people groups, I handed them all over to Babylon, and then I handed my people over to Babylon to carry them into exile, just like I told them I would through chapters 1 through 39. God said, I did this. So here's the point. God is, and what he's communicating to everyone is that he is and always has been in control. Babylon has accomplished nothing that God did not allow. And thus the message to the world is that the ultimate power on earth is nothing but a puppet in the hands of God. And with this now revealed as true to all people, remember everyone's there, there's really only two ways to respond here. Here's the wrong one, verses five through seven. The islands have seen it and fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. They help each other and say to their companions, be strong. The metal worker encourages the goldsmith and the one who smooths with the hammer spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. One says of the welding, it is good. The other nails down the idol so it will not topple. The people of the world, the islands, despite seeing all that God has done, they still choose not God. They still look to an idol to save them. They make with their withering hands what will ultimately decay. And they nail down this dead representation of whatever idea they think will save them. And God, who is above all and who created all and is in control of all, he looks on. This is how the world responds, and it is sad. It's just incredibly sad. But listen now as God invites us, his people, to respond differently. And I'm so excited to share these verses with you because these are the verses that God has used the most in my life over this last year. Verses 8 through 20. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you, and I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear. I will help you. And my favorite verse, do not be afraid, you worm Jacob. Isn't it good to be known by your God? Do not be afraid, you worm Jacob. And this term of endearment, little 
Israel. Do not fear. I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them, the wind will pick them up, and a gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valley. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. I will put in the desert the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle and olive. I will set junipers in the wasteland, the fir and the cypress together. And why, God? So that the people may see and know may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. See, one choice we have is idols, or in other words, dead things we make up that lead to our death. The other choice we have is God. You've got God and you have not God. That's it. It all comes down to that from this day to eternity. It all comes down to that. And as you make your decision in your day-to-day life, I want you to remember this. Even after all of the rejection and unfaithfulness of his people, even being completely aware of all the words that describe his people, worm, grasshopper, faith like a dead flower, God says to his little Israel, I am your God. I have not rejected you. I have called you. I have chosen you. I am with you. I will take hold of your hand. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. Do not be afraid. I am the Lord. I will redeem you. I will make you powerful. You will destroy your enemies. I will provide for you in the desert and in the wasteland. And if you choose me, you will rejoice and glory in me. Fellow worms, this choice, there is one good option. I want the God that even knowing me as he does will still say these things to me and do these things for me. Friends, God has plotted for our joy and our peace and to relieve the suffering of this world since before sin corrupted it. And I'm gonna tell you today, knowing this God in the midst of this world, that's what gives me peace this Advent. And if you need still more convincing that God is the better choice, then I want you to hear what God says directly to our idols. The things that we choose over him because he's got some words for them as well. Verses 21 through 29. God says, present your case. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Tell us, you idols, what is going to happen? Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are gods. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. Here's what he says to them. But you are less than nothing, and your works are utterly worthless. And let this sit. Whoever chooses you is detestable. Referring to Babylon, he says, I have stirred up one from the north and he comes, one from the rising sun who calls on my name. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar, as if he were a potter treading the clay. Who told of this from the beginning so we could know? Or beforehand so we could say he was right. No one told of this. 
No one foretold it or heard any word from you beforehand. I was the first to tell Zion, look, here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a messenger of good news. And now he talks to us directly. I look, but there is no one. No one among the gods to give counsel. No one to give answer when I ask them. See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. Friends, anything in this life other than God that we put our hope in will ultimately only prove to be confusing and empty. It will fail us. I don't, I don't care what it is. There is neither idol nor idea, no matter how well you think it's currently going, that will not ultimately fail you. Idols and their supposed accomplishments, they amount to nothing. They are wind. They are confusion. And I hope you're picking up as we've gone now through all of these verses, 60 verses up to this point. I hope you are picking up that all created things pale in comparison to our God. And the only things that we can rely on are God's word that endures forever and God himself. That is all. Would you like to stop being blown about and find peace in the Lord, your redeemer, the holy one of Israel? Then your choice is to choose God and listen to him tell you about Jesus. Because finally now that we have been confronted with ourselves, and the fruitlessness of choosing anything but God. Finally, now that we have been confronted with the vastness, the power, the love, and the faithfulness of our God, finally now can we see clearly the peace offered by the act of God that is Jesus. First, let's listen to how God describes Jesus in the book of Isaiah. Here's the first thing he says to his people in exile about their savior. Listen to this, verses one through four of 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth and in his teachings, the islands will put their hope. That's Jesus. God's servant, upheld by God, chosen by God, delighted in by God. He has the spirit of God. He is powerful like God to bring justice to the nations, but still he's gentle like our shepherd God. Bruised reeds, You've heard of reed pipes. Bruised reeds can still make beautiful music in the proper hands. So Jesus won't break them. A smoldering wick can be refreshed with oil, so he won't snuff it out. Through the faithfulness that the people of God never demonstrated, Jesus will bring forth justice. He will bring forth what is right, and his ability to accomplish this for all people is not in question. Why? Because God says so. That is how God describes Jesus. Now listen to God tell Jesus what he's going to do with him. Did you know that, Jesus, or that God talked directly to Jesus in the book of Isaiah? If you ever wonder about why Jesus could be so confident 
that God was working through him, listen to these words in verses five through seven. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. And here's what he says to Jesus. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Is this not exactly what Jesus did? As God talks to Jesus, the first thing he does, in case we were wondering after the other stuff, is remind us who he is and what he's done and how he continues to give each of us breath and life. He reminds us that he is unquestionably sovereign over everything. And he tells both Jesus and us what he is going to do. Through Jesus, there will be a new covenant that God establishes. There will be light for the Gentiles. There will be sight for the blind. There will be freedom for captives to a people in exile. A people confused by idols. A people who wither over time with falling faith. In other words, a people like you and I. The certainty of this message from God, that's our peace. The certainty we have that God whose word endures through time is going to accomplish these things is our peace. And it's this peace that we prepare our hearts for at Advent, the peace of a Savior born, the peace of God's word kept once again, the peace of a promised new covenant of freedom, of a future flowing through the life and faithfulness of God's servant in the manger. That's our peace. And because sometimes we feel like hope in this peace is all we have as we deal with our broken world, I want you to know how you can be sure this is real. Verses eight and nine, God will close for us today with these words. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Worship team, come on up. How can we be sure? In the midst of our temporary, frail, grasshopper-like, withering state with our falling faith, how can we be sure he is the Lord? That is his name. He stands above all creation. Idols are nothing before him. Glory and praise belong to him. His word endures forever and he just gave it to us. He has been proven right time and time again. 700 years went by between this prophecy and the cry in a Bethlehem stable that said Jesus was born. That baby in the manger, Jesus, that's the servant God's talking about. Us being here today is proof of the new covenant. It happened. Even us wormy Gentiles, yep, us too. God has been plotting for our peace for generations. Friends, today, how many more ways will God have to prove himself faithful, powerful, loving, and true before his people give up their dead idols and find their lives fully in him? Friends, when we choose God and not our idols or whatever other nonsense we think will save us, when we put our faith in God or more fully in God and his servant in the manger, do you know what's going to happen? God is not going to break you with judgment. He's going to take the bruised reed that you are and he's going to make music. He's going to take the dryness in your life and refresh it with oil 
and he's going to light you up with his grace and love. When you put your hope in the Lord, he's going to renew your strength. You're going to soar like an eagle. Through Jesus, he's going to give you light. He's going to open your blind eyes. He's going to free you from the dungeon of your sin. He's going to give you the peace of knowing that he has you well in hand in this broken world until you join him in the next. You see, Advent, the coming of Jesus, the new covenant through Jesus, all of this is an act of God. And those acts, they simply don't fail. And how can you be sure? He's the Lord. That's his name. Let's pray. God, we do say that you are the Lord. Everything else is weakness and broken, confusion and fails. But you don't. And Lord, today we stand on the promises that you gave to us, the peace that you offer us. We thank you today, God, for Jesus and his coming and the promises that that fulfilled, the new covenant that that brought, and the love that you demonstrated after years and years and generations and millennia of faithfulness. God, help us to remember your faithfulness today and commit our lives to that every day until we wither away and join you in your kingdom of heaven. We love you, God. Amen.